Section 3 of Despoilers of the Golden Empire by David Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 3, Chapter 9. They couldn't stay long in any one village. They didn't have the time to sit and relax any more than was necessary. Once they had reached the northern marches of the native empire, it was to the commander's advantage to keep his men moving. He didn't know for sure how good or rapid communications were among the various native provinces, but he had to assume that they were top-notch, allowing for the limitations of a barbaric society. The worst trouble they ran into on their way was not caused by native warriors, but by disease. The route to the south was spotted by great strips of sandy barrenness, torn by winds that swept the grains of sand into the troopers' eyes and crept into the chinks of their armor. Underfoot, the sand made a treacherous pathway. Carriers and men alike found it heavy going. The heat from the sun was intense. The brilliant beams from the primary seemed to penetrate through the men's armor and through the insulation beneath and made the marching even harder. Even so, in spite of the discomfort, the men were making good time until the disease struck, and that stopped them in their tracks. What the disease was, or how it spread, is unknown and unknowable at this late date. Virus, or a bacterium, amoeba, or fungus, whatever it was, it struck. Symptoms, lassitude, weariness, weakness, and pain. Signs, great ulcerous wart-like blood-filled blisters that grew rapidly over the body. A man might go to sleep at night, feeling reasonably tired, but not ill, and wake up in the morning to find himself unable to rise, his muscles too weak to lift him from his bed. If the blisters broke or were lanced, it was almost impossible to stop the bleeding. And many died, not from the toxic effect of the disease itself, but from simple loss of blood. But, like many epidemics, the thing had a fairly short lifespan. After two weeks, it had burned itself out. Most of those who got it recovered, and a few were evidently immune. Eighteen men remained behind in shallow graves. The rest went on. Chapter 10 No man is perfect. Even with four decades of training behind him, Commander Frank couldn't call the turn every time. After the first few villages, there were no further battles. The natives, having seen what the invaders could do, simply showed up missing when the commander and his men arrived. The villages were empty by the time the column reached the outskirts. Freighter Vincent, the agent of the Universal Assembly, complained in no uncertain terms about this state of affairs. "'As you know, commander,' he said frowningly one morning, "'it's no use trying to indoctrinate a people we can't contact, and you can't subject a people by force of arms alone. The power of the truth—' I know, Freighter, the commander interposed quickly, but we can't deal with these savages in the hinterlands. When we get a little farther into this barbarian empire, we can take the necessary steps to... The truth, Freighter Vincent interrupted somewhat testily, is for all men. It works regardless of the state of civilization of the society. The commander looked out of the unglazed window of the native hut in which he had established his temporary headquarters in one of the many villages he had taken, or, rather, walked into without a fight because it was empty. But you'll admit, Freighter, that it takes longer with savages. 
True, said Freighter Vincent. We simply haven't the time. We've got to keep on the move. And besides, we haven't even been able to contact any of the natives for quite a while. They get out of our way. And we have taken a few prisoners. His voice was apologetic, but there was a trace of irritation in it. He didn't want to offend Freighter Vincent, of course, but Namet, the assemblyman, didn't understand military tactics at all. Or, he corrected himself hastily, at least only slightly. Yes, admitted Freighter Vincent, and I've had considerable success with the prisoners. But remember, we're not here just to indoctrinate a few occasional prisoners, but to change the entire moral and philosophical viewpoint of an entire race. I realize that, Freighter, the commander admitted. He turned from the window and faced the assemblyman. We're getting close to the Great Bay now. That's where our ship landed on the second probing expedition. I expect we'll be more welcome there than we have been out here in the countryside. We'll take it easy, and I think you'll have a chance to work with the natives on a mass basis. The freighter smiled. Excellent, Commander. I, uh, I want you to understand that I'm not trying to tell you your business. You run this campaign as you see fit, but don't lose sight of the ultimate goal of life. I won't. How could I? It's just that my methods are not, perhaps, as refined as yours. Freighter Vincent nodded, still smiling. True, you are a great deal more direct, and, in your own way, just as effective. After all, the assembly could not function without the military. But there were armies long before the Universal Assembly came into being. The commander smiled back. Not any armies like this, Freighter. Freighter Vincent nodded. The understanding between the two men, at least on that point, was tacit and mutual. He traced a symbol in the air and left the commander to his thoughts. Mentally, the commander went through the symbol patterns that he had learned as a child, the symbol patterns that brought him into direct contact with the ultimate power, the power that controlled not only the spinning of atoms and the whirling of electrons in their orbits, but the workings of probability itself. Once indoctrinated into the teachings of the Universal Assembly, any man could tap that power to a greater or lesser degree, depending on his mental control and ethical attitude. At the top level, a first-class adept could utilize that power for telepathy, psychokinesis, levitation, teleportation, and other powers that the commander only vaguely understood. He himself had no such depth of mind, such iron control over his will, and he knew he'd never have it. But he could and did tap that power to the extent that his physical body was under near-perfect control at all times, and not even the fear of death could shake his determination to win or his great courage. He turned again to the window and looked at the alien sky. There was a great deal yet to be done. The commander needed information. Needed it badly. He had to know what the government of the alien empire was doing. Had they been warned of his arrival? Surely they must have, and yet they had taken no steps to impede his progress. For this purpose, he decided to set up headquarters on an island just offshore in the Great Bay. It was a protected position, easily defended from assault, and the natives, he knew from his previous visit, were friendly. They even helped him get his men and equipment and the carriers across on huge rafts. From that point, he began collecting the information he needed to invade the central domains of the greatest noble himself. It seemed an ideal spot, 
not only protection-wise, but because this was the spot he had originally picked for the landing of the ship. The vessel, which had returned to the base for reinforcements and extra supplies, would be aiming for the Great Bay area when she came back, and there was little likelihood that atmospheric disturbances would throw her off course again. Captain Bartholomew was too good a man to be fooled twice. But landing on that island was the first and only mistake the commander made during the campaign the rumors of internal bickerings among the great nobles of the barbarian empire were not the only rumors he heard news of more local treachery came to his ears through the agency of natives now loyal to the commander who had been indoctrinated into the philosophy of the assembly a group of native chieftains had decided that the invading earthmen were too dangerous to be allowed to remain on their island in spite of the fact that the invaders had done them no harm there were after all whisperings from the north whence the invaders had come that the armored beings with the terrible weapons had used their power more than once during their march to the south the chieftains were determined to rid the island of the potential menace as soon as the matter was brought to the commander's attention he acted he sent out a patrol to the place where the ringleaders were meeting arrested them and sentenced them to death he didn't realize what effect that action would have on the rest of the islanders he almost found out too late chapter eleven there must be three thousand of them out there said lieutenant commander ernan tightly and every one of em's crazy rot the commander spat on the ground and then sighted again along the barrel of his weapon i'm the one who's crazy i'm a lousy politician that's my trouble the lieutenant commander shrugged lightly anyone can make a mistake just chalk it up to experience i will when we get out of this mess he watched the gathering natives through hard slitted eyes the invading earthmen were in a village at the southern end of the eight mile long island waiting inside the mud-brick huts while the natives who had surrounded the village worked themselves into a frenzy for an attack. The commander knew there was no sense in charging into them at that point. They would simply scatter and reassemble. The only thing to do was wait until they attacked, and then smash the attack. Ernan, he said, his eyes still watching the outside, you and the others get out there with the carriers after the first volley. Cut them down. They're twenty to one against us, so make every blow count. Move. Ernan nodded wordlessly and slipped away. The natives were building up their courage with some sort of war dance, whooping and screaming and making threatening gestures toward the embattled invaders. The pattern of the dance then changed. The islanders whirled to face the mud-brick buildings which housed the invading earthmen. Suddenly the dance broke and the warriors ran in a screaming charge straight for the trapped soldiers. The commander waited. His own shot would be the signal, and he didn't want the men to fire too quickly. If the islanders were hit too soon, they might fall back into the woods and set up a siege which the little company couldn't stand. Better to mop up the natives now, if possible. Closer, closer, now! The commander's first shot picked off one of the leaders in the front ranks of the native warriors, and was followed by a raking volley from the other power weapons, firing from the windows of the mud-brick buildings. The warriors in the front rank dropped, and those in the second rank had to move adroitly to keep from stumbling over the bodies of their fallen fellows. The firing from the huts became ragged, but its raking effect was still deadly. 
a cloud of heavy stinking smoke rolled across the clearing between the edge of the jungle and the village as the bright hard lances of heat leaped from the muzzles of the power weapons toward the bodies of the charging warriors the charge was gone from the commander's weapon and he didn't bother to replace it as hernan and his men charged into the melee with their carriers the commander went with them at the same time the armored infantrymen came pouring out of the mud-brick houses swinging their swords straight into the mass of confused native warriors a picked group of sharpshooters remained behind in the concealment of the huts to pick off the warriors at the edge of the battle with their sporadic fire the commander's lips were moving a little as he formed the symbol patterns of power almost unconsciously a lifetime of habit had burned them into his brain so deeply that he could form them automatically while turning the thinking part of his mind to the business at hand he soon found himself entirely surrounded by the alien warriors their bronze weapons glittered in the sunlight as they tried to fight off the onslaught of the invaders and those same bronze weapons were sheared nicked blunted bent and broken as they met the harder steel of the commander's sword then the unexpected happened one of the warriors braver than the rest made a grab for the commander's sword arm at almost the same moment a warrior on the other side of the carrier aimed a spear thrust at his side either by itself would have been ineffectual the spear clanged harmlessly from the commander's armor and the warrior who had attempted to pull him from the carrier died before he could give much of a tug but the combination plus the fact that the heavy armor was a little unwieldy overbalanced him he toppled to the ground with a clash of steel as he and the carrier parted company without a human hand at its controls the carrier automatically moved away from the mass of struggling fighters and came to a halt well away from the battle the commander rolled as he hit and leaped to his feet his sword moving in flickering arcs around him the natives had no knowledge of effective swordplay like any barbarian they conceived of a sword as a cutting instrument rather than a thrusting one they chopped with them using small shields to protect their bodies as they tried to hack the commander to bits but the commander had no desire to become mincemeat just yet five of the barbarians were coming at him their swords raised for a downward slash the commander lunged forward with a straight stop thrust aimed at the groin of the nearest one it came as a complete surprise to the warrior who doubled up in pain the commander had already withdrawn his blade and was attacking the second as the first fell he made another feint to the groin and then changed the aim of his point as the warrior tried to cover with his shield a buckler is fine protection against a man who is trying to hack you to death with a chopper because a heavy cutting sword and a shield have about the same inertia and thus the same maneuverability but the shield isn't worth anything against a light stabbing weapon the warrior's shield started downward and he was unable to stop it and reverse its direction before the commander's sword pierced his throat two down three to go no four another warrior had decided to join the little battle against the leader of the invading earthmen the commander changed his tactics just slightly with the third man he slashed with the tip of his blade against the descending sword arm of his opponent a short quick flick of his wrist that sheared through the inside of the wrist severing tendons muscles veins and arteries as it cut to the bone the sword clanged harmlessly off the commander's shoulder a quick thrust and the third man died 
The other three slowed their attack and began circling warily, trying to get behind the commander. Instead of waiting, he charged forward, again cutting at the sword arm of his adversary, severing fingers this time. As the warrior turned, the commander's sword pierced his side. How long it went on, he had no idea. He kept his legs and his sword arm moving, and his eyes ever alert for new foes as man after man dropped beneath that snake-tonguing blade. Inside his armor, perspiration poured in rivulets down his skin, and his arms and legs began to ache, but not for one second did he let up. He could not see what was going on, could not tell the direction of the battle, nor even allow his mind to wonder what was going on more than ten paces from him. And then, quite suddenly, it seemed, it was all over. Lieutenant Commander Hernan and five other men pulled up with their carriers, as if from nowhere, their weapons dealing death, clearing a space around their commander. You heard, bawled Hernan. The commander paused to catch his breath. He knew there was a sword slash across his face, and his right leg felt as though there was a cut on it, but otherwise, I'm all right, he said. How's it going? They're breaking, Hernan told him. We'll have them scattered within minutes. Even as he spoke, the surge of battle moved away from them toward the forest. The charge of the carriers, wreaking havoc on every side, had broken up the battle formation the aliens had had. The flaming death from the horrible weapons of the invaders, the fearless courage of the foot soldiers, and the steel-clad monsters that were running amuck among them, shattered the little discipline they had. Panicky. They lost their anger, which had taken them several hours to build up. They scattered, heading for the forest. Shortly, the village was silent. Not an alien warrior was to be seen, save for the hundreds of mute corpses that testified to the carnage that had been wrought. Several of the commander's men had been wounded, and three had died. Lieutenant Commander Hernan had been severely wounded in the leg by a native javelin, but the injury was a long way from being fatal. Hernan gritted his teeth while his leg was being bandaged. The angels were with us on that one, he said between winces. The commander nodded. I hope they stick with us. We'll need them to get off this island. Chapter 12 For a while, it looked as though they were trapped on the island. The natives didn't dare to attack again, but no hunting party was safe and the food supply was dropping. They had gotten on the island only by the help of the natives who had ferried them over on rafts, but getting off was another thing now that the natives were hostile. Cutting down trees to build rafts might possibly be managed, but during the loading the little company would be too vulnerable to attack. The commander was seated bleakly in the hut he had taken as his headquarters, trying to devise a scheme for getting to the mainland when the deadlock was finally broken. There was a flurry of footsteps outside, a thump of heavy boots as one of the younger officers burst into the room. Commander, he yelled, Commander, come outside. The commander leaped to his feet. Another attack? No, sir, come look. The commander strode quickly to the door. His sight followed the line of the young officer's pointing finger. There, outlined against the blue of the sky, was a ship. The news from home was encouraging, but it was a long way from being what the commander wanted. Another hundred men and more carriers had been added to the original company of now-hardened veterans, and the recruits, plus the protection of the ship's guns, were enough to enable the entire party to leave the island for the mainland. 
By this time, the commander had gleaned enough information from the natives to be able to plan the next step in his campaign. The present greatest noble, having successfully usurped the throne from his predecessor, was still not in absolute control of the country. He had won a civil war, but his rule was still too shaky to allow him to split up his armies, which accounted for the fact that, thus far, no action had been taken by the imperial troops against the invading earthmen. The commander set up a base on the mainland, near the coast, left a portion of his men there to defend it, and with the remainder marched inland to come to grips with the greatest noble himself. As they moved in toward the heart of the barbarian empire, the men noticed a definite change in the degree of civilization of the natives, or at least in the degree of technological advancement. There were large towns, not small villages, to be dealt with, and there were highways and bridges that showed a knowledge of engineering equivalent to that of ancient Rome. The engineers of the empire of the great nobles were a long way above the primitive. They could have, had they had any reason to, erected a pyramid the equal of great Khufus in size, and probably even more neatly constructed. Militarily speaking, the lack of knowledge of iron hampered them, but it must be kept in mind that a well-disciplined and reasonably large army, armed with bronze-tipped spears, bronze swords, axes, and maces, can make a formidable foe, even against a much better equipped group. The imperial armies were much better disciplined and much better armed than any of the natives the commander had thus far dealt with, and there were reputed to be more than 10,000 of them with the greatest noble in his mountain stronghold. Such considerations prompted the commander to plan his strategy carefully, but they did not deter him in the least. If he had been able to bring aircraft and perhaps a thermonuclear bomb or two for demonstration purposes, the attack might have been less risky. But neither had been available to a man of his limited means, so he had to work without them. But now he avoided fighting, if at all possible. Working with Freighter Vincent, the commander worked to convince the natives on the fertile farms and in the prosperous villages that he and his company were merely ambassadors of goodwill, missionaries and traders. He and his men had come in peace, and if they were received in peace, well and good. If not, well, they still had their weapons. The commander was depending on the vagueness of the information that may have filtered down from the north. The news had already come that the invaders were fierce and powerful fighters, but the commander gave the impression that the only reason any battles had taken place was because the northern tribes had been truculent in the extreme. He succeeded fairly well. The natives he now met considered their brethren of the northern provinces to be little better than savages, and therefore to be expected to treat strangers inhospitably and bring about their own ruin. The southern citizens of the empire eyed the strangers with apprehension, but they offered very little resistance. The commander and his men were welcomed warily at each town, and, when they left, were bid farewell with great relief. It took a little time for the commander to locate the exact spot where the greatest noble and his retinue were encamped. The real capital of the empire was located even further south, but the greatest noble was staying for the nonce in a city nestled high in the mountains, well inland from the sea coast. The commander headed for the mountains. The passage into the mountains wasn't easy. The passes were narrow and dangerous, and the weather was cold. The air became thinner at every step. At 8,000 feet, mountain climbing and heavy armor becomes more than just hard work, 
and at twelve thousand it becomes exhausting torture but the little company went on sparked fueled and driven by the personal force of their commander who stayed in the vanguard his eyes ever alert for treachery from the surrounding mountains when the surprise came it was of an entirely different kind than he had expected the commander's carrier came over a little rise and he brought it to an abrupt halt as he saw the valley spread out beneath him he left the carrier walked over to a boulder near the edge of the cliff and looked down at the valley it was an elongated oval of verdant green fifteen miles long by four wide looking like an emerald set in the rocky granite of the surrounding peaks that thrust upward towards the sky the valley ran roughly north and south and to his right at the southern end the commander could see a city although it was impossible to see anyone moving in it at this distance to his left he could see great clouds of billowing vapor that rolled across the grassy plain evidently steam from volcanic hot springs which he had been told were to be found in this valley but for the moment it was neither the springs nor the city that interested him most in the heart of the valley spreading over acre after acre were the tents and pavilions of a mighty army encampment from the looks of it the estimate of thirty thousand troops which had been given to him by various officials along the way was if anything too small it was a moment that might have made an ordinary man stop to think and having thought turn and go but the commander was no ordinary man and the sheer remorseless courage that had brought him this far wouldn't allow him to turn back so far he had kept the greatest noble off balance with his advancing tactics if he started to retreat the greatest noble would realize that the invaders were not invincible and would himself advance to crush the small band of strangers the greatest noble had known the commander and his men were coming he was simply waiting to find out what they were up to confident that he could dispose of them at his leisure the commander knew that and he knew he couldn't retreat now there was no decision to be made really only planning to be done he turned back from the boulder to face the officers who had come to take a look at the valley we'll go to the city first he said End of section 3